Alright, greetings fellow Earthlings. This is Dave coming to you with another episode of uh, And Another Thing with Dave. I would like to discuss with you this episode <clears throat> the deep state, the FBI and, and the CIA, um, and who knows, in, in further uh, episodes, we may get into the NSA, but I think we're pretty much just going to start with the FBI here. We'll get into the CIA a little bit. Um, but yeah, you know, so these people specialize in deceit. <laughs> but but they're being paraded around us recently, you know, um, as uh, sources that we should we should rely on and trust. But there's a, there's a history of these people not being honest with us. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the pieces I'm going to pull up here, uh, you know, a guy wrote a book about, um, you know, how the FBI was spying on, uh, in the 50s and 60s, spying on professors and students, um, students involved in the free speech movement, in the anti-war movement, free, free speech movement. Um, yeah, how they infiltrated these groups. Um, and it gets pretty dark. It gets pretty dark. <clears throat> um, so, you know, there's a, there's a history you know, then we've got of these people lying to us and committing atrocities and lying about it and then getting caught. Or, you know, through Freedom of Information Act, decades later, we're finding out, you know, that the FBI was responsible for Martin Luther King's uh, assassination and also for um, Malcolm X. So, awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> But they kept lists on all these people, on activists, people on the left in general, progressives, um, followed their movements. They infiltrated these operations, and in a, in a lot of cases, like um, in the case of the Black Panthers, they infiltrated the organization and then took it down from the inside, um, you know, and murdered or incarcerated the leadership and decimated the organization. Um, they also did that. FBI also did that with Earth First, which was an environmental organization. Uh, they bombed Judy Berry in her car and then blamed Judy Berry, said she was transporting a pipe bomb underneath her car seat to do some kind of terrorist act with it, and it accidentally went off. <laughs> Under her seat. Yeah, right. Like, if you were transporting a pipe bomb to go do some stupid shit with, would you put it under your car, your own car seat to drive it there? Hell no. Nobody would do that, right? But, um, yeah, she lived, but she got all messed up from that. So, long, dark history. You know, the CIA got caught smuggling cocaine in the Iran-Contra scandal. They got caught lying to Congress... And then they got caught when a CIA plane got shot down in Nicaragua full of weapons. Um, so we were arming a rebel group, we, the United States, the deep state, directly went against Congress's wishes. 
in uh, in the Iran Contra affair, and it, it gets clouded by just the name of it, the Iran Contra scandal. So let's just look at the Contra part of that Contra scandal. So um, we wanted to arm the Sandinista rebels, which were fighting against the democratically elected government, and Congress did not want to support these rebels, so dark forces within the deep state decided to go ahead and do it anyway. George Bush, the former head of the CIA, was vice president at the time. He and Oliver North both got basically busted for this, you know. Oliver North didn't, uh, didn't do any jail time, I don't believe. And, uh, Said he was just following orders. Yeah, well, those orders are illegal. Um, but anyway, so half of it was how are they, well how are they going to pay for it? They smuggled coke into the United States, so this is huge. Okay, so now now I said it. Now we got to take a little segue, and I have to explain this. So they're flying coke in from Nicaragua to pay for the weapons that they're sending back down there, right? And also to pay for weapons that they're sending to Iran to support Iran with. So, both. But to generate the income, they our own CIA was basically selling coke, smuggling it in three tons at a time. This guy, Barry Seal... Um, I guess I'll have to link to all this. <laughs> I better write this down. So, um, yep. So, Iran Contra, Barry Seal, he was the pilot, and he was flying a converted CIA plane that was made to haul cargo, cocaine, so they could haul as much as possible. It was had everything gutted from it, and it was just two pilot seats up front, and then just you know, cargo space. So he was making a killing doing it, and they who knows how long they got a, a, they got away with it for before they got busted. But um, yeah, one of the planes got shot down over Nicaragua, and that's what what started the whole thing um, unraveling. The case was. Cracked by an investigative journalist, Gary Webb, from the San Jose Mercury News. He suicided himself, of course. Um, but he broke the story. And um, and it went as, you know, it went high up the government. So where did they fly the cocaine into? Mena, Arkansas. Enter Bill Clinton. Do you ever wonder how, like, a guy from the uh, becomes president after being the governor in the poorest state in the country? I always wondered. Like, he didn't he didn't do anything noteworthy. Didn't do anything special as governor. As a matter of fact, after watching a documentary, apparently he was a pretty super corrupt governor, and was in control of all three branches of the government in Arkansas had it on lockdown, um, but I digress, <clears throat> I'll link to a documentary on that, 
But, uh, yep, so enter Bill Clinton. He decided to play ball with George Bush and do this project. I guess Mena, Arkansas happens to be one of the most remote air fields in the country. So, perfect for, you know, 24-7 smuggling operation. Anyway, so long story short, you can't trust these mo-effers, right? They're proven through time and history, their own deeds, that they're completely untrustworthy, right? So, you know, here's, a, here's Mike Pompeo even talking about, uh, you know, he's ex-CIA director. Now he's our, what, our Secretary of State? Our uh, Secretary of Defense. So here's that lying bastard talking about how he's a lying bastard. When I was a cadet, what's the first, what's the cadet model? Well, sorry, let me uh, turn up the volume on this a little bit. That's a little quiet there. This is important. So here's Mike Pompeo. I believe he's speaking at Texas A&M. And this clip is from YouTube. Thank you to the Gray Zone. Wonderful uh, work the Gray Zone does over there, breaking, covering great stories, breaking some great stuff. Um, but yeah, so this is Mike Pompeo, yep, speaking at Texas A&M University on April 15th, 2019. So not even that long ago. And here he admits, in public, that he's a lying POS. When I was a cadet, what's the first, what's the cadet motto at West Point? You will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. I, I, I was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we steal, stole. It's, it's like, we, we, had, we, had entire, we had entire training courses. Uh, it... Uh, it, it, it reminds you of the, uh, uh, the glory of the American experiment. Whoa. Whoa. Now let me, let's break this down for a minute here. So he's saying right out in public, I lied, I cheated, I stole. Man, I was the director of the CIA. We, we taught whole courses in that. And then he laughs and gets a huge applause. Like, that is scary. That's our future. Applauding corruption and deep state, you know, black ops. Like, oh, God. Then he closes with, it reminds you of the glory of the American experiment. It reminds, he closes with, it reminds you of the glory of the, uh, wait, blah, blah, blah. It reminds you of the glory of the American experiment. What does lying and cheating and stealing reminds him of the glory of the American experiment? Wow, I think that experiment failed. <laughs> How'd all your covert ops and covert wars go? They kind of came back and blew up and bit you in the ass with what the CIA terms blowback which is unforeseen, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, unforeseen consequences to our foreign policy. So meaning we arm, you know, 
Al-Qaeda and then they turn into ISIS? Yeah, stuff like that. We arm the Mujahideen and then they turn into Al-Qaeda, I mean. Um, you know, we armed the Mujahideen. We recruited in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. The U.S. recruited Muslim extremists from all over the world to fight against the Soviets. Armed them and... Uh, and created this from all different countries. So we created a bunch of like ragtag extreme extremist warriors and banded them together to create an army of them. We armed them all. <laughs> and then we wonder where the fuck Al-Qaeda came from. Like, wow, okay. And then we dis then in Iraq, ISIS is basically or it started basically as the ex-military and police forces of Iraq after they were fed up with our occupation, after they saw it wasn't going well, and, you know, then they fought back. I'm not justifying them killing American soldiers, far from it. I'm just saying there's a cause and an effect to everything. And if you don't poke the hornet's nest, you probably won't get stung at least not as many times as if you didn't poke the hornet's nest. That's all I'm saying. Um, so anyway, let's get into the episode here a little bit. I've got another great clip here for you. Um, and what this is, is, um, well, this is fantastic. This is, um, Democracy Now! on YouTube here. This is a clip from, uh, Democracy Now!, and they are interviewing a uh, gentleman who wrote a book about the FBI. And we're going to listen to the introduction right here. Continue our conversation with Seth Rosenfeld, a longtime investigative reporter and author of Subversive, the FBI's War on Student Radicals and Reagan's Rise to Power. Now, Seth, we've had a long discussion on Richard Aoki, but he really is a, a small portion of your book, the the the... the the large portion of it really deals, as the title says, with the FBI's uh, uh, attempts uh, to, uh, to, to, uh, to surveillance and repression of student radicals and university professors. And you go into in-depth about the, the efforts of the agency uh, against Mario Savio and the free speech movement in Berkeley, Could, uh, and even against the president of the uh, University of California system at the time, uh, Clark Kerr. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, my book, uh, Subversives, is a secret history of the 60s. It's the story of the FBI's covert operations at the University of California at Berkeley and the surrounding campus community during the Cold War. It's based on more than 250,000 pages of FBI documents. And one of the main parts of the book focuses on the free speech movement of 1964 and Mario Savio. Uh, the free speech movement was one of the first major student protests of the 1960s. It was nonviolent. It was inspired by the civil rights movement. And it was actually a protest against a campus rule that prohibited students from engaging in any kind of political activity on campus. So, for example, if students wanted to hand out a leaflet for the Republican National Convention, which in the summer of 64 was at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, 
they were prohibited from doing that. If they wanted to hand out a leaflet saying, come to the civil rights demonstration, they couldn't do that either. The students felt that this was an unconstitutional abridgment of their First Amendment rights, and that's what the protest was about. Mario Savio emerged as perhaps the most prominent spokesperson for the free speech movement. Um, Mario is a fascinating character. He was born in New York City in 1942. He was extremely bright, had a uh, above genius level IQ, and in high school a 96.6 grade point average. He was raised in a very religious Catholic family. He was uh, brought up to be a priest, and he, for much of his early life, uh, thought he would become a priest. But as he went through high school, he began to have doubts about his faith. He began to question the dogma and became interested in philosophy and science. <clears throat> he began to look elsewhere to, as he put it, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, as he put it, to do good in the world. You know, while you take a water break, um, I thought we would play a clip. Um, UC Berkeley's Sproul Plaza first drew national attention in 1964 when thousands of students struggled for their right to free speech on campus, led by, as you are describing, student activist Mario Savio. This is a speech he delivered nearly half a century ago on the steps of Sproul Hall. Of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, by all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. That wow, wow. Mario Savio, who tears to my eyes. Wow, that's an activist. You've got to be willing to put your body on the gears of the machine to make it stop. Wow, that was powerful. Wow. All right, let's continue with more. Um, from this investigative journalist on Democracy Now! Was Mario Savio, give us the context as you continue with Mario Savio's story of this address. Yes. Uh, Mario actually had a very debilitating stutter when speaking in small groups of people. But when he was impassioned and speaking against what he believed was injustice, he spoke with divine fire. And that speech is a... Uh, an example of that. And people who were in that audience, uh, in the crowd on Sproul Plaza that day, have said that that speech uh, sent shivers down their backs. He moved people to participate. And as a result of his speech and all the work that the free speech movement had done, more than a thousand people streamed into Sproul Hall and staged what was the nation's largest sit-in to date uh, overnight and more than 800 people were arrested the next day. And this was shocking that students would engage in this kind of behavior. At that time in our history, um, most campuses were characterized by a kind of complacency and conformity. And the free speech movement was a major break from that. And it was very shocking to people, uh, particularly J. Edgar Hoover, uh, 
according to the FBI documents that I've reviewed, the FBI had special concerns about the University of California, starting at least in World War II. Um, as you know, the University of California played a key role in developing the atomic bomb that was used to end World War II. And during, during the war and immediately thereafter, uh, there were Soviet efforts to obtain, through espionage, using members of the Communist Party, uh, secrets from the radiation lab. So some of the, uh, the records I look at document the FBI's extensive investigation into Soviet espionage at the University of California, Berkeley in the 1940s. But what you see in the following decades is the FBI, under J. Edgar Hoover, veers from that important national security mission to focus instead on professors engaged in dissent. And during the 1950s, the FBI had a secret program called the Responsibilities Program. And through this program, FBI agents secretly gave governors of nearly every state allegations against professors who were deemed to be too radical or too liberal. The wow. So this is wild. The FBI would give information to governors of the states throughout the United States about professors at universities in their state. Wow. Governors would take this information secretly, pass it along to university officials, and have them investigate and question and uh, sometimes fire uh, the professors. Professors never knew where these allegations came from. They never had the opportunity to cross-examine the witnesses against them. Then and Seth so here we have the FBI swaying the, the, the base of teachers. They were able to black, basically to blacklist certain teachers. It's like McCarthyism all over again. So that, as, you mentioned, uh, as you mentioned in the book, often the, uh, the allegations that the FBI passed on were, uh, were wrong, were erroneous. And people were tarred uh, just because they may have been, uh, uh, had met with somebody who was, in, uh, who was politically uh, active in a, in a left-wing movement, uh, so that much of the information the FBI passed on was, uh, was erroneous. Yes, that's true. Um, in a number of instances, I was able to document that uh, in the case of California, the governor at the time, Earl Warren, uh, passed along these reports to the president of the university, Robert Gordon Sproul. And when the university investigated them, they found they were unsubstantiated. So um, and the role that was an extensive program, and nearly a 1,000 professors around the country were forced from their jobs as a result of it in the early 1950s. Then in the very early 1960s, you see in the late 50s, early 60s, you see the FBI shift its focus to students who are engaged in political dissent. The FBI starts to investigate them and creates uh, actually has a list called the Security Index. And this is a list of people who are deemed potential threats to national security in the event of a national emergency and who would be arrested without warrant and detained indefinitely during an emergency. And quite a few professors and students at Berkeley in the early 60s were on this secret list. In Not just... Berkeley, also San Francisco State University, was was very active, maybe not in the early 60s, but I know 
in the mid to late 60s they were, and we'll touch on that in a, in a moment. In fact, at that time, uh, former agents told me that the FBI considered Berkeley uh, to be one of the most radical cities in the United States with the highest per capita number of uh, people on a security index. So to come back to the free speech movement, when that happens in 1964, J. Edgar Hoover and other FBI officials see this as further evidence of a subversive plot to disrupt the nation's campuses, and they respond by intensively investigating it and going beyond investigating it with secret efforts to disrupt it and neutralize it in various ways. Seth Rosenfeld, we don't have much time. We have less than two minutes. But you're uh, following the trajectory of Ronald Reagan, who famously said in 1970, if it takes a bloodbath, let's get it over with. No more appeasement. He's talking about the students. The role—how extensively Ronald Reagan was involved with the FBI, more than was previously known? Yes, he was much more involved with the FBI than previously known. And one of the arguments in my book is that his covert relationship with the FBI had a profound influence on his political development. This relationship begins in Hollywood uh, in the years immediately after World War II, when FBI agents approach Ronald Reagan, uh, and he becomes an informer. And he names other people in Hollywood, actors, who he suspects of subversive activity. And he names uh, more people than we've previously known. Um, through my Freedom of Information Act lawsuits, I obtained more than 10,000 pages on Ronald Reagan during his pre-presidential years. This is the most extensive record uh, of the FBI's activities concerning him. Um, when Reagan is president of the Screen Actors Guild, the FBI has wide access to information from Guild records about actors whom the FBI is investigating. And then later, the FBI returns the favor to Reagan by uh, doing personal and political help for him. Uh, during my Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, the FBI was withholding certain information, claiming it was law enforcement information. And I challenged that. I said, uh, the context suggests that this is actually personal and political help. And the court agreed and ordered the information released. And what those records show Five is that in 1960, for example, the FBI, at the request of Ronald Reagan and his former wife, Jane Wyman, conducted an investigation into the romantic life of his daughter, Maureen Reagan. The Reagans had heard that she was living with—she was then 18, living in Washington, D.C., and they had heard that she was living with an older married policeman. Wow. Wow. So he ran, he ran out the, the time clock on democracy now, and they just had to cut him. But what a, oh my God, so Reagan was an FBI plant in Hollywood and was ratting out people who he, you know, assumed were leftist-leaning. Wow. And then when he gets into, you know, oh my God, anyway... So unbelievable, right? So huge, huge history here. Um, yeah, it's just unbelievable. Uh, now I want to get into, um, oh, yeah, so I wanted to talk about San Francisco State a little bit. I went to San Francisco State, and I had a professor that was there during the 60s, <clears throat> and what he said 
was that, um, well, you know what? Let's take a little break and I will come right back with that story. All right, we're back. I'm still Dave, and this is still and another thing with Dave. So, as I was uh, saying, I uh, went to I I took a uh, an audio recording program at San Francisco State, um, finished in like 2000, and um, my professor had been there since 1968 and was a huge activist on campus, and he was telling me that they went so far to silence free speech at San Francisco State University that um, they did away with the student union building. They demolished it. And there was a central amphitheater, like a quad area amphitheater, where like the Grateful Dead came and performed at lunchtime. The Steve Miller Band performed. Santana... I mean, it was a pretty amazing time, and all those bands were from, like, right right here. So, but, but the, you know, probably guided by the feds, by the F- FBI, Hoover and his paranoid fools, um, they demolished the student union, tore out the quad and seating and everything, and left a giant gaping hole in the ground. So now there was no place to get lunch or no place to gather was the idea. And what they did is they put coffee carts out in front of each building. So like the math building had a coffee cart in front of it. The English building had a coffee cart in front of it, you know. So, you know, you can mingle with people from your own building or whatever, but there was no central gathering spot for students to hang out. No place for concerts. F you, they shut it down. Um, you know, and, uh, because it was a very politically active campus. My professor told me that many teachers joined him and, you know, and walked out on strike with the students many times. So, you know, it was a, it was a tumultuous time. Our government was doing horrible things and we were not okay with that. Now our government's still doing horrible things, but somehow we've become okay with it. So I got another great clip from Democracy Now! that I want to play here. And this one, this one's wild. This one, um, these people are heroes. These are people who burglarized the FBI in 1971 to reveal the FBI spying on activists, progressives, um, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, all kinds of people, tons and tons of people, Malcolm X. Um, But it revealed the depth and darkness that, you know, the lengths to which the FBI goes to subvert progressive movements, activists and progressives. you know, and the FBI was caught saying that that basically their mission is to prevent 
a progressive movement from ever taking office. So like, wow. I mean, just, it's unbelievable. You know, so this is fantastic. Um, and let's get into this, to a little bit of this with democracy now here. Um, and this was from January 8th, 2014, uh, 1971 burglars who exposed FBI spying reveal their names. Talk about balls. Wow. Now in our studio are three of the activists who broke into the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania on March 8th, 1971. The break-in led to revelations about the FBI's secret COINTELPRO program that targeted activists across the country. None of the burglars were ever caught. On Tuesday, their identities were revealed for the very first time. Keith Forsyth, Bonnie Rains, and John Rains all lived in Philadelphia in 1971. Forsyth was working as a cab driver. He was chosen to pick the lock at the FBI office. Bonnie and John Rains hosted many of the planning meetings for the burglaries at their home where they were raising three children. Bonnie, who worked as a daycare director, helped case the FBI office by posing as a college student interested in becoming an FBI agent. John Rains was a veteran of the Freedom Rights Movement and a professor at Temple University. He used a Xerox machine at the school to photocopy many of the stolen documents. We're also Wow, so these are heroes. These people are absolute heroes. Um, and if they weren't so old, they would probably be getting the Julian Assange treatment. And um, I don't know, this was aired in 2014. So for all I know, maybe they have been picked up and, and jailed. Um, huh, maybe I'll Google them while we're, while we're watching this. Joined by Betty Metzger, author of the new book, The Burglary, The Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI. Metzger first reported on the stolen documents while working at the Washington Post. She uncovered the identities of most of the burglars in her new book. And we welcome you all to Democracy Now! Keith, I want to begin with you. Um, talk about the time and how you ended up going into the FBI office. What spurred you on? So at that time, uh, we had just within a few years gone through uh, the sort of peak of the civil rights movement um, and many of the laws like the Voting Rights Act had been passed some years before but the reality of uh, racial justice was still far from complete. Um, there were uh, the war in Vietnam was raging at that point in time um, and so there were many, many people uh, who were working for change in those areas in particular. Um, my main focus at that time was the anti-war movement. Um, I was, you know, uh, spending as much time as I could uh, with uh, uh, organizing against the war, but I had become very frustrated with uh, legal protest uh, didn't seem to be getting us anywhere. The government wasn't listening. Uh, the war was escalating and not de-escalating. Um, Man, I can, I can really relate to what he's saying right there. I went to, uh, you know, when the first Iraq war started, I went to a protest in San Francisco. I was living in San Francisco at the time. Went to a protest on Market Street. And um, 
there must have been hundreds of thousands of people. Market Street was packed elbow to elbow, sidewalk to sidewalk, including the middle of the street, totally shut down from the end of Market Street all the way to Civic Center. Anybody that knows the city, that's a lot of people. And then you watch the media and they say, uh, you know, 40,000 people showed up. So, but my point being, I see what he's saying, you know, like protest doesn't do shit really, you know, makes you feel a little better. Yeah, there's people that are as fed up as me, but no change comes from it. I went to, a, a, you know, a similar sized protest at the second Iraq war, you know, and it didn't, you know, it ended with a huge drum party, you know, dance party in front of the San Francisco Civic Center, which was fun and cool and everything, but it didn't stop the war. And while we were doing that, bombs were still dropping. So, yeah, at a certain point, you got to re-strategize. And I think what really pushed me over the edge was um, shortly after the invasion of Cambodia, uh, there were four students killed at Kent State and two more killed at, uh, at Jackson State. So the invasion of Cambodia. Okay, so let's talk about that real quick for a second. He's talking about the Vietnam War. We were, we were told, we're not in Cambodia. We're not in Laos. Well, now let's look at CIA corruption, their history of drug running, and their history of needing money to pay for black ops that, that Congress doesn't want to pay for. Um, well, Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand were an area called the Golden Triangle, or still are. Um, and that region was the largest producer of heroin. And as a matter of fact, it was, it had that title up until recent time. Oddly enough, who, who displaced the Golden Triangle as three countries as the leader, leading producer of heroin in the world? Afghanistan. And when did it do that? Oh, after the U.S. invasion. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Once we have boots on the ground in Afghanistan, then all of a sudden it blows up into the largest producer of heroin in the world. Hmm. Crazy coincidences. And, I'm sorry. I think I got this down after all these years. I'm sorry, we gotta rewind this. I, you know, I wanna let this guy say this through because this is powerful so he's talking about you know cambodia people are freaking pissed off that what do you mean we're in cambodia killing people there we're not supposed to be there and then the national guard kills four students that were peacefully protesting at kent state horrible that's what uh neil young's song ohio is about uh there were four students killed at Kent State and two more killed at uh, at Jackson State. And I'm sorry, I think I'd have this down after all these years. 
uh, and uh, that really pushed me over the edge. That it, it was it was time to do more than just uh, than just protest than just march with a sign. Uh, and I um, uh, joined uh, the so-called Catholic Left, uh, which is where I met John and Bonnie, and also Bill Davenant. Uh, and from there, uh, the next step was was the uh, uh, was the media action. Uh, Heath, could you also talk about how you were invited uh, to join this plan to mm -hmm. break in to by uh, William Davidon? Uh, if memory serves, he called me on the phone and Can asked. Explain who William Davidon was. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Bill Davidon uh, at that time was a professor of physics at Haverford College. Uh, and I knew him mainly as uh, a fellow activist in the peace movement. He was very prominent in Philadelphia um, in both the legal and the illegal peace movements. Um, and he, um, uh, he called me on the phone uh, one day and asked me if I wanted to come to a party, which was code for an action. And I believe I said, um, uh, sure, I'm always up for a party. He can check the FBI transcript because they were tapping his phone at the time. Um, and so we met at an outdoor location where we couldn't be um, uh, bugged, and he presented the idea to me then. And Bonnie Rains, talk about your involvement. What motivated you? You were a young mother of three. How old were your children? Uh, they were eight, six, and two at that time. Wow. Talk about a dedicated freedom fighter. Eight, six, and two. And she's risking everything to be part of this burglarizing of an FBI office. That's dedication. Wow. Um, we've since had a fourth child. Uh, I became involved, um, as, as Keith said, uh, beginning with the Civil Rights Movement. And when we lived in New York and were students, uh, then we moved to Philadelphia, very much opposed to the war in Vietnam, and found a whole community of activists in Philadelphia. Um, <clears throat> we became acquainted with the um, what was called the Catholic Left at that time, um, and the Berrigan brothers, Phil and Dam, were, were the leaders in that. Uh, and we participated in a, with that group called the East Coast Conspiracy to Save Lives in a draft board raid. We went into a draft board in the middle of the night as part of the draft resistance movement. Where was that? In North Philadelphia, a draft board in North Philadelphia. We targeted that draft board because it was in one of the poorest sections of the city where they were bringing many, many, many young, poor young men into the, <coughs> into the armed forces to be sent as cannon fodder to Vietnam. Uh, our government was lying to us about the casualties, both civilian and military casualties. So I participated, along with John, in, in uh, going into a draft board and removing files and destroying those files so those young men could not be drafted. God bless her. Wow. Wow. Here's, you know, obviously, maybe not a, you know, from privileged background, but you know, she's off at university being an activist and uh, risks her ass to go to a poor neighborhood to destroy the draft records there so that these people cannot be drafted. Wow, that's a hero.
And you mentioned the Berrigan brothers, the <coughs> yes, priests, yes. Uh, Phil, uh, the late Phil Berrigan, mm -hmm. um, and Father Dan Berrigan, yes. who's still alive. Um, Catonsville, how significant in 1969 was this for you? I wanted to go to a clip right now mm -hmm. um, of the Catonsville action. That was Catonsville, Maryland, where um, a group of activists led by Fathers Dan and Phil Berrigan uh, burned draft cards with napalm. They're showing uh, a historic video of these people standing around a pile of burning draft cards that they symbolically burned with napalm, which you just make with, you know, by mixing kerosene and uh, whatchamacallit, styrofoam. Uh, they stole hundreds of draft records and torched them. They were sentenced to three years in prison. Their action helping ignite a wave of direct actions against the draft in the Vietnam War. And that we don't believe in interposing one form of violence for another. And that we believe that an action like this will still speak to our fellow Americans and bring home to them that a decent society is still possible, but it's, it's totally impossible if these files and what they represent are preserved and honored and even defended as those poor women tried to. That was Father Dan Berrigan as they stood around uh, in a circle and burned with napalm, and napalm being yes. used in Vietnam draft records. Mm -hmm. That was a very dramatic moment for all of us, I believe. <clears throat> um, it took civil disobedience to another level and uh, really brought us clearly to an another level of protest against the war in Vietnam. And uh, we followed their lead in targeting the draft as one of the real evil systems of that war. Uh, and that's how we became involved in covert uh, actions with draft boards in Philadelphia. Wow, that is awesome. That is awesome. And then unfortunately, you know, the CIA and FBI infiltrated all these activist groups and you know, it's amazing these people were never caught and jailed. It is truly amazing. And John, John Rains, can you talk about um, your sense that the anti-war movement itself had been infiltrated by FBI informants? Oh, sure. I mean, that, that was obvious uh, for any of us who were uh, involved in the civil rights movement because it happened in the civil rights movement. J. Edgar Hoover's FBI was all over the civil rights movement with infiltrators. Uh, and uh, uh, surveillance, intense surveillance, uh, and uh, and people that would report back on meetings and so on. And of course, we'd all know that Edgar Hoover and his FBI went after Martin Luther King, tried to uh, discredit him, indeed even sent him a note suggesting that because of his activities uh, with other women besides his wife, he now had no option but to commit suicide. That note was sent to Dr. King suggesting, and it was from the FBI, suggesting that Dr. King commit suicide. Uh, so that we knew from the Civil Rights Act uh, uh, actions that J. Edgar Hoover and his FBI were very much against anything that, that promised significant social change. We brought that information, that knowledge, north with us when we came uh, to the, uh, the anti-war movement. Uh, and uh, it became clear that the the tactics he used to disrupt and, and destroy, try to destroy the protest movement in the South, 
uh, he was using once again against uh, the protesters against the war in Vietnam. Uh, the problem was uh, J. Edgar Hoover was untouchable. Uh, he was a national icon. I mean, he had presidents who were afraid of, of, of him. Uh, the people that we elected to oversee J. Edgar Hoover's FBI uh, were either enamored of him or terrified of him. Uh, nobody was holding him accountable. Well, now let me just interject here. This is the problem we get into with the deep state. It's the government that runs the government, but it's unaccountable and unelected. Not elected. Um, what was it? Was it Chuck Schumer that said something to Donald Trump like, that he Donald Trump better better be careful messing with the FBI or whatever because they have or the CIA James Comey whoever because they have seven ways to Sunday to to screw you like wow so our government is afraid of the deep state and for good reason right this is what this guy's reiterating that they're controlling it and. And that meant that somebody had to get objective evidence of what his FBI was doing. And that led us to the idea that Bill Davidon uh, suggested to us. Let's break into an FBI office, get their files, and get what they're doing in their own handwriting. You and Bill Davidon are professors. Yes. Uh, he, a professor at Haverford, you a professor at Temple University. Yes. What did you feel about the risk that you were taking? Were well, you concerned uh, about getting caught? Well, Bonnie and I uh, were parents, uh, and uh, we had three kids uh, under 10. Uh, and, and that was a very serious uh, consideration. Um, we had to be persuaded that uh, we could get away with this. Uh, and uh, we learned nice burglar skills from uh, priests and nuns. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. <laughs> and, uh, and we'd cased uh, the FBI office and media very carefully. You uh, thought about Philadelphia, but thought it was too secure. Oh, yes, it was a big building downtown. You couldn't touch that. But media, you could. Uh, and uh, we felt quite confident that if we could get in there, and get out without leaving any physical evidence behind, that we could then disappear into the very, very large uh, anti-war movement, uh, thousands of people in the Philadelphia area. So just listen to the level of dark uh, of depth that he's talking about, how they must have been so careful. They must have been wearing body condoms, right? If they, if, as long as we could leave no physical evidence, he's talking about like a hair Right? You've seen CSI, right? They can't leave a hair behind, an arm hair, nothing. They must have been wearing like full long sleeves, like hair nets or hats or whatever, and like gloves and, you know, probably a face mask or something. Wow. Talk about cojones. So they were prepared to leave three kids and go away to jail forever if it failed, if they got caught. That's intense. You had prepared in case you were caught to have your children taken care of. 
uh, we knew that we knew the risks, we knew the jeopardy. We weren't going to be reckless. We weren't going to move ahead with our involvement, except with the leadership of Bill Davidon, who we all had so much admiration and respect for. Um, but we did feel that it was necessary to speak to John's older brother and his wife and to my mother and father about caring for our children if should the worst happen and we would be convicted and sent to federal prison. Keith Forsyth, you chose the night of the Muhammad Ali-Joe um, Frazier fight mm -hmm. to break in. Why? Why was this so significant, March 8th, 1971? Well, it was just, you know, there were many steps that we took to try to avoid getting caught. Um, and this was one of them, uh, because uh, whoever suggested, and I have no idea who it was, uh, thought that it would add to the distraction, not only of the police, but of just uh, people in general. Uh, the building in which the office was located had, had a live-in supervisor, and his apartment was directly below the FBI office. So um, he was going to be on the next floor down while we were inside walking around opening cabinets. Oh, my God. Uh, so uh, anything that could keep his mind off of the ambient sound sounded like a good idea. Yeah, thank How did you know that you would find what documents you would find, or did you know? We didn't know. We, we, were, we were pretty sure. Um, uh, you know, bureaucracies are the same everywhere. They love to keep records. Um, but we really, we were taking a shot. Uh, so in that sense, we, we got lucky that they did keep records. This brings Betty Metzger into the story, um, whose book this week, The Burglary, reveals the identities of um, the activists involved in this burglary. Um, looks like J. Edgar, Mover, J. Edgar Hoover uh, found his match in this group of people. Um, talk about receiving in the mail the documents. You're a reporter at the time for The Washington Post. <coughs> okay. I'd just like to say something about Bill Davidon, if I might, first, that um, the idea was Bill's. And um, Bill participated in preparations for the book and the, and the documentary that's been made in 1971. And we should note that uh, we're all very sorry that Bill's not with us. Bill died in, in November. Uh, but he was a, sort of a genius in coming up with, with this idea because um, although many people in the various movements at that time thought that there was uh, there were an FBI informers in their organizations, there was no evidence of that, and the public <coughs> didn't know. And Bill had this deep commitment that if the public could be presented with evidence, they would be very upset, even though there he Hoover was an iconic figure, that if they knew that, that there was massive surveillance of the political surveillance, that they would care and do something, and that's what happened. Um, I was a reporter, and one day this uh, envelope appeared in my mailbox, and um, it said it was from Liberty Publications, that was the return address, Media Pennsylvania, that didn't mean anything to me. <laughs> Um, but when I opened it, uh, there was a cover letter that said it was from the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. That was a new organization to me. <laughs> and uh, there was, the letter explained that a group of eight people had burglarized an FBI office on the night of March 8th. 
and that enclosed were some of the files that they had removed from the office. And some of those files were very shocking. Um, I think the, the one, and you showed the excerpt from this on the retro report, the first shock, uh, and this also resonated very much with the public when it was published and discussed, was the one that uh, instructed agents to enhance the paranoia and then also um, make people think that there's an FBI agent behind every mailbox. And that was a pretty stunning statement and said so much. And the, the burglars were themselves were shocked, I understand, when they found that. The yeah, I mean, unbelievable. The, the depths to which our own government was willing to go to just, you know, to just so hype, you know? Discord. Uh, unbelievable. Um, yeah, and she continues a little bit here. I'm trying to find the clip. All right, here's a good clip here. There are many about individuals, and they're all serious. But the one of the things that I remember most from those files was the, the truly blanket surveillance of African-American people that was described. It was in Philadelphia, but it also prescribed national programs. It was quite stunning. First, it described the surveillance. It took place in every place where people would gather, churches, classrooms, stores down the street, just everything. But it also specifically prescribed that every FBI agent was supposed to have an informer just for the purpose of coming back every two weeks and talk. They're showing uh, an FBI document, and this one's called Watch the Ghetto. Watch everything that moves in the ghetto. All resident agents. Wow. And this is from Sacramento. 329-1968. And they're talking about racial informants in the ghetto. Wow. Talking to them about what they had observed about black Americans. And in Washington... We're watching the... Oh, and here's a quote. We're watching these black student unions. Unbelievable. We see at the time uh, that was six informers for every FBI agent informing on black Americans. The surveillance was so enormous that it led various people, rather sedate people in editorial offices and uh, in Congress, to compare it to the Stasi, the dreaded secret police of East Germany. Well, and it really is, right? I mean, what's the difference at this point? They're putting together records of people who are dissenting their, you know, regime. Even though, oh my God, even though we're a free country. So thank you. We need to be, we need to hold our elected officials accountable. They need to be accountable for their actions. And in order for there to be accountability, there needs to be transparency. So thank God for whistleblowers. You know, nobody, no future military action or anything has been jeopardized by any of the leaks, and none of the leaks have been proven to be false, right? So let's start there. They've all been proven to be true. 
bunch of different war crimes that Edward Snowden let out. The one famous one was was collateral murder. And if you haven't seen that, you need to uh, just check it out on YouTube. Collateral murder. It's hard to watch. It's like 12 minutes of these jarhead soldiers flying around in a helicopter begging permission to light these people up. And so I think they killed 12 people and then they're just all laughing and joking about it and you know it was just it's disgusting. So he exposed that and many 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 other things like that. Didn't put anybody's safety in jeopardy. What he did is he shone a light into the darkness, the horrors of war, and, and it's, you know, and, and dispelling the myth of the one bad apple. Bullshit. When you have behavior like this, you know that it's a culture, right? It's a culture. You know, a culture of our enemies being less than, less than human almost, so that you can do animalistic things to them. Oh, man. So, so these people exposed Pro. That's huge. It's huge. And, the, you know... If you just type in Cointelpro on YouTube, you can find all kinds of backup stories that go deeper and deeper into what that program did. But um, let's just uh, find one more clip I've got here. So, oddly enough, through, I believe, Freedom of Information Act, um, Malcolm X's killer is revealed, and it looks like the FBI is tied to that, too. So, this is, uh, Lee Camp on Redacted Tonight. Uh, this episode was February 28th, 2020, so just a few days ago. And, uh, here's Lee Camp coming to us with this little breakdown. Speaking of getting away with murder, this past week was the 55th anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination. One of the most, most influential black leaders in American history. And if he were alive today, I think he'd view everything as going great. <laughs> think about it. Three out of the eight main contenders for president are billionaires, and all are white. I'm sure he'd love it. As you may know, three men were convicted for gunning down Malcolm X in 1965 as he gave a speech in New York City. But a new Netflix series has prompted the New York City District Attorney's Office to review those convictions and reinvestigate who's actually responsible for killing Malcolm X. How cool is that? A new Netflix series prompted the New York City District Attorney's Office to review those past convictions and reinvestigate. Good work, Netflix. That is awesome. One of those convicted, Thomas Hagen, was caught and confessed, but he said the other two had nothing to do with it. 
In fact, the other two weren't even at the event that day. And the series, Who Killed Malcolm X, shows via Freedom of Information Act request that the FBI knew the shooter who actually fired the deadly shot was a man named William Bradley, and he was never arrested for it. In fact, he went on to become a, a respected member of the community in Newark, New Jersey. And the FBI never told the NYPD and never told the American public. They just, they just let two innocent men rot in prison for a crime they didn't commit. It, it, it's simply disgusting. Someone should look in to this organization, this... So, unbelievable, right? Unbelievable. <laughs> so, the NYPD is casing, is following, is doing surveillance on Malcolm X. The FBI is doing surveillance on Malcolm X. Yet he gets gunned down in broad daylight in a church making a speech. And, uh... <laughs> wow. So, there it is. Freedom of Information Act. So, that's... Looks like a pretty cool documentary um, series. Thank you, Netflix. I'm going to have to check out that, uh, that series. What was it called there? It's called uh, Malcolm X. Who Killed Malcolm X? On Netflix. So, anyway, it's been another episode of And Another Thing with Dave. I would love to hear your comments. Um... Uh, you know, if you're on the Anchor app, anchor.fm, which is what I record the uh, podcast on, if you're on the Anchor, you can ch leave a one-minute uh, chime in, just, uh, you know, chime into the conversation. So, would love to hear that. Would love to uh, hear any thoughts you have on this subject or uh, any ideas you have for future episodes. Uh, pretty excited. We're on up to uh, six different platforms now, including Google Podcast, um, Spotify, and uh, as I said, Anchor.fm, which I record the podcast on, and uh, of course, we've got, uh, got the podcast on YouTube as well, and we are And Another Thing with Dave. This has been Dave Smith. Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it, and please keep fighting. So I just had to mention also about election fraud, election tampering. So we just learned that the FBI, um, you know, uh, had surveillance going on activists, that they even framed activists for activities that some people didn't commit, right? So, um, getting those people blacklisted, in some cases fired from positions as professors for no reason, it turns out, just because the, the, the FBI didn't like their uh, political leanings, right? Um, but now, you know, at the same time, we're supposed to believe these people when it comes to things like Election tampering. So here's this thing. It's a commercial put out by the FBI. And I, I found this clip on YouTube, of course. <laughs> and it's uh, from uh, somebody, Q13Fox. 
so it must be a news station or something. Um, but what it is, FBI shares tools to combat hacking, foreign influence on elections and social discourse. Foreign governments and operatives have and will continue to influence U.S. elections using coordinated <laughs> disinformation campaigns and sophisticated computer hacking, all to undermine American democracy. Foreign governments. Huh. So we just talked about and heard a bunch of people talk about how our own government's doing that to undermine democracy here, undermine freedom of speech, undermine civil rights activists, peace protesters, environmentalists, on and on. Um, so this leads us right to Russiagate and Russia baiting. And all this BS on Russiagate. We're pointing fingers over there, over there, over there. Well, I think it was during the George Bush Al Gore election where, oh, what the hell is the name? Diebold. The Diebold scandal. It was the Diebold voting machines. And I watched a documentary on it. I'll see if I can find this clip. But I watched a. a it was like an expose. Some news person did an investigative piece on the Diebold voting machines. Well, within two minutes, somebody was able to hack, to break into the machine and tamper it so that it would flip votes, say, from Gore to Bush, right, in that election. And apparently that had happened with tens of thousands of votes, like, 80,000 votes in Florida alone or something, which is why they stopped the recount. Anyway, blah, 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 I'm digressing. But the machines, these Diebold voting machines, are made so that they're super easy to, to tamper with. The guy said he didn't even need a special key to open the machine. He was able to open it with a dime. So he just took a dime out of his pocket and was able to take the physical machine apart and within two minutes was able to make it flip votes. So, of course that's by design. Are you kidding? So they probably bid on the, the most easily hackable machines. So the fact that we're pointing at Russia is a joke because we've done nothing to solidify our own elections and to, to eliminate the tamperability of our elections. One way to, to eliminate election tampering would be to go with a paper ballot, right? So even if you have electronic voting, you have a paper backup of each vote that was cast, so you can you actually have a paper record of every vote, like every transaction, like a freaking the you know xing out a cash register. You get the roll, you get the receipt roll, you know, to balance the cash register. Of course, you what you do that at a local Seven Eleven as the manager, but we don't do that with our elections. Once again, by design, Tulsi Gabbard submitted a bill so that would do exactly that. It would mandate paper ballots and paper backups. But people lobby against that because then there's transparency, so then you can't hack it. And then your billionaire donors that are supporting you don't like that. So there's so many ways that our democracy is subverted from within it just kills me that we point at Russia. We collapsed the Soviet Union. 
So <laughs> if anybody should be pointing at anybody, you know, we're, we're fucking with the, with the Soviet Union over Crimea. We're fucking with them over the Ukraine. We got no business fucking with Russia. We got them surrounded by military bases, them and Iran and China. So the enemy's not over there. The enemy's right here. And then let's talk about, about the Bernie Sanders election for a minute and how that was stolen. So, you know, everybody has now seen the WikiLeaks clips that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Hillary conspired with the DNC to steal the primary from Bernie in 2016. Um, yeah, it's unbelievable. The, the WikiLeaks even went on to, to talk about about Hillary, the Hillary campaign choosing Donald Trump and uh, Ted, what's his name, Ted Cruz, as what what's called Pied Piper candidates. So candidates that they would just that had no hope of winning, but and that they would decimate. So how much of a loser is Hillary? She loses to her own Pied Piper candidate. <laughs> oh my God! But then, so we've got. Not only are, are our machines set up to be tampered with, easily tampered with, but then we've got this ridiculous system of the Electoral College, delegates, and superdelegates. So it's like three different layers of the onion, three different ways the elite can counter the public vote at three different stages. Should, you know... Should a progressive make it through hoop number one? Oh, now we got this trick up our sleeves. Should they make it through hoop number two? Oh, shit. Well, we still have this ace up our sleeves. Um, it's unbelievable. But here's a commercial. The FBI talking about... Oh, shoot. My, Powering uh, off. Whoop, damn it. It was on. Okay, I got it. Powering on. Sorry. Get my little speaker there. Um Cutting. So let me just make sure we are paired. So here's a little commercial by the FBI. And it's it's just hilarious because they're talking about, you know, other people interfering, you know, outside. It, it's just, and it sounds like they're talking to a three-year-old too. So it's, you know, super <laughs> annoying. Anyway, here it is. This is just one of more than a dozen educational videos recently released by the FBI. The goal, remind all of us that American democracy continues to be in the crosshairs of foreign interference. In the past, it was primarily spy versus spy and foreign nations attempting to uh, obtain state secrets to give themselves an advantage uh, on the global stage. That has changed dramatically. The Protected Voices Initiative by the FBI intends to educate businesses, campaigns, and voters on how to protect themselves. The feds insist Americans' enemies aim to hack elections, infrastructure, and even fund counter-information campaigns. Over the last few years, this threat has risen to the point where it is a close number two uh, for the FBI. And it's not just presidential campaigns that are being targeted. The FBI warns state and even local races could also be vulnerable. Why would a foreign agent target the city council race in Seattle, do you think? I think our adversaries um, look at this as a long-term long project. Um, and that if they can 
influence certain areas. Uh, this area in Seattle is a very significant area on the global stage. The technology that is developed here in Seattle is extremely, um, ex it's, it's significant and extremely valuable and of great interest to our foreign adversary. We always do our... Oh my God, what's, a, what's of great interest to your foreign adversaries? The technology in Seattle? Like, he, he's just stumbling. He's trying, he's digging for something, you know? And let me just, uh, let me just play Mike Pompeo again, you know? Talking about being the head of the CIA. Cadet. What's the first, what's the cadet motto at West Point? You will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do? I, I, I was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we steal, stole. It's, it was like... We, we, had, we, had entire, we had entire training courses. So you don't believe these people? No. They're, they're, you don't believe somebody from the deep state. They are specialists at deceit and subversion. And the way they do that is through manipulation. So here he's saying that foreign governments are going to hack into the city council elections of places like Seattle. Why? Because Seattle's got a high-tech district like Silicon Valley and why? <laughs> so they get so they get they throw the city council China is trying to throw the city council election for what? Cuz they're bribing somebody to do what? To sell state secrets or or what? Does that person have a tie, a connect to the head of Google? Like, there's no there there. Unfucking believable. But they, you know, so this is the level of deceit. Everything in teams of two, we use tamper evidence seals, and that has been um, historically uh, best pro uh, best practice. I think what's changed is the way we secure our equipment. The Thurston County Auditor recently showed Q13 News how Homeland Security helped them secure their ballots. Plus, the agency is using USB blockers and disconnecting sensitive equipment from the Internet to minimize the risk of hacking. It would be very difficult for a foreign actor to come in and hack our elections. Plus <laughs> but it's easy for a domestic actor, like, say, somebody in the FBI, to come in and hack our elections or how about the DNC to hack our elections like they did in Iowa in the pri with the primary of Bernie just recently right they they halted the vote count and then they said they'll finish the vote count at DNC headquarters instead of in Ohio Ohio or in Iowa I'm sorry <laughs> I don't think so according to the FBI defeating foreign influence can also happen at home in some cases Hackers access dormant social media accounts that are owned by those you know and trust. If I'm reading Aunt Ginny's post, I think it's Aunt Ginny. For sure. And it could likely be someone thousands of miles away across the globe. Could be a troll farm in some other country that is spreading a certain message, uh, and Aunt Ginny has no idea that it's going on. Protect wow. So here they're filling our head full of lies, and they're also covering for Facebook that Facebook allows fake accounts and that Facebook is and that they're not doing all they can to work with Facebook to prevent fake accounts from troll farms opening up fake a 
uh, Facebook accounts. So what they're saying instead is that a troll farm will ha hack into your aunt, whatever the hell, Aunt Bertha's Facebook account that's been dormant. Yeah, right. So troll, form, troll farms only use dormant Facebook accounts? How the hell do they find a dormant Facebook account? So they have whole troll farms just finding dormant accounts to feed out to other people who then troll our troll bots on those dormant accounts? And what is a dormant account? Dead people? Wouldn't you think it'd be weird that, like, all of a sudden the dead person starts posting? How do you get access? To, oh, I don't know. But once again, they're not, they're not putting it on Facebook to eliminate fake accounts because, oh, then Facebook would have to do something. They'd have to admit that they work with Facebook and capture all of our information through Facebook. So they don't want to go there. So they tell us instead, <laughs> i got to have them say this again. It's your Aunt Marge and her dormant account. Uh, and Aunt Jenny has no idea that it's going on. Aunt Jenny and her dormant account, and she That's just has no idea. ...to campaigns, businesses, and the public on how to minimize your risk, because while spies are still among us, many who wish to see America suffer can now reach us using the social media channels we've come to depend on. Their objective in that particular space is to create conflict and divisiveness in our country. Uh, to, 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 to weaken our, our, uh, our social fabric. In Seattle, Steve Kiggins, Q13 News. Wow. So, yeah, they're trying to weaken our social fabric, but the FBI is not doing that by infiltrating, you know, Black Lives Matter, by, you know, infiltrating all these different activists and peace groups. Infiltrating peace groups. <laughs> Why don't you go prosecute, like, you know, some war criminals? How about you arrest the people that were exposed by Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange throughout all of his leaks? How about you go arrest those war criminals that were exposed instead of the people that exposed the war crime? Wow. So, basically... What the FBI does is subvert democracy. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anyway, so... This has been a... A rather infuriating episode. You know, it's... Um, <laughs> it just gets... It gets so frustrating listening to these people talk sometimes. And just when you, you know, when, when there's evidence out there, so you know they're lying. So, oh, anyway, thanks for tuning in. This has been Dave with, and another thing with Dave. We're on uh, a few new platforms now. Pretty excited about that on uh, Spotify and on uh, Google Podcasts and Hopefully more coming soon. But anyway, peace out. Stay vigilant and keep fighting, my friends. Remember, we are the one we are the ninety-nine percent. They are the one percent. We can do this. <laughs>